Amen. Thank you, Tony. So good morning again. We are continuing this morning in a series through uh, the Psalms. Everybody loves the Psalms. Uh, And if you love the Psalms, then uh, Psalm 103 is probably one of your favorites. I've heard from a few people already. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn, we're actually going to read from Psalm 63 first and then jump to Psalm 103. There are similar themes in those two Psalms. And, uh, And if you don't, if you don't want to have to worry about that, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me as we read together. So again, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 63, we're going to read four verses there, and then we're going to read the entire Psalm, Psalm 103, okay? Follow along, uh, if, you, if you will. Let's look together. Both of these are Psalms of David. <clears throat> oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. And then going to Psalm 103, David shows us what it means and and how you do bless the Lord. Listen to this, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, he says, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your diseases, who heals all your, excuse me, forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not chide always, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And so he finishes, bless the Lord. O you as angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So what makes for a happy life? In a lot of ways, I think that is the question that's being thrown around culturally. It's a hotly contested question culturally. A lot of the, the, uh, what we've referred to as the culture wars, a lot of the, the discord, a lot of the political angst that we feel as a society can really be boiled down to, I think, different versions of how you would answer that question. What makes for a happy life? Now, what you need to know is that you already have an answer to that question, whether you realize it or not. 
And your life is already aimed at whatever your answer is, whether you realize it or not. But here, in these two psalms, God would try to reorient us, I think, through his word to the proper answer, at least for people who say they believe in him and Jesus Christ. Look at Psalm 103. It begins with the command to bless the Lord, which is then repeated over and over again throughout that psalm in both the first three verses and then again in the last three. Now, it begins and ends the same the psalm does, and that is a literary device from the ancient world, an ancient language called an inclusio. And whenever you read in the scriptures a section like this that begins and ends with the same phrase or the same word or the same material, it it thematically organizes everything in between. It's the organizational principle of the whole section. So this psalm is about what you know what whatever he means here by blessing the Lord. Now you need to know that the word bless really is a word that just means happy. And so that is the theme of Psalm 103. You could say it's actually the theme of all of the psalms. The first word in the very first psalm, the first word in the whole Psalter in Psalm 1, anybody want to guess what it is? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and so forth, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, the psalm says there. So that's a happy life. The psalms are a roadmap to a happy life. Now, That is important for us to note because at the same time, they challenge some of our most basic assumptions about what makes for a happy life. Tim Keller, in a typically insightful way, would say, for most people, happiness is something like this. It is getting control of your life so that you can keep your circumstances favorable. That's what happiness is. In other words... He, he was reflecting on, we as a society, typically we're people who are not happy unless things are going okay, and sometimes not even then. But there's a really big problem. There's a big problem with that. If you're only happy when things are going okay, that's a really big problem. Why? Because things are never going okay. We live in a fallen world. And in the Psalms, as you read them, there's always some crisis. There's a threat. There's some enemy, which means happiness has to come from somewhere else. Indeed, Psalm 103 encourages us, if you look there, to bless the Lord, that is, to happy ourselves in God. Now, Jonathan Winfrey, our, uh, our, not our associate pastor, he quoted George Mueller last Sunday as saying this. He said, the first great, Mueller said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. He goes on, he says this, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this, above all things to see it, see to it that your souls are happy in God. Now, if you don't know who George Mueller is, he is known for running orphanages in Britain in the 19th century, but more than that, he was known as a man of incredible faith and prayer. He provided for and cared for thousands of orphans for 50 years or so without ever once asking for financial help from other people. He claimed to have had 50,000 prayers answered throughout his ministry that he could document in his prayer journals. Close to $3 million donated to his orphanages throughout his ministry. I did the math. I did the Google thing. That's $210 million in today's currency through prayer. 
Now, what's the source of that kind of spiritual power? I mean, he, you know, we read books about him today because it was such an amazing story. What fuels a movement like that? Well, Mueller himself said that the primary business was not writing newsletters to his support base. His primary business was the thing to be attended to more than anything else was to happy himself in God, to have his soul happy because of God, because that is true happiness, because it has nothing to do with whether things are going okay or not. So when it's not going okay, guess what? When trouble comes, then you don't lose it, which is why it's the best advice that you could, that you could have someone give you. So Psalm 103, and along with it, Psalm 63, is really, is really the Lord showing us what makes for a happy life and how to happy ourselves in him. But here's what we need to see. You need to see first the need to be happy, happy in yourself in God. And we'll see that primarily from the text in Psalm 63. Secondly, you need to see the method for happy in yourself in God uh, and what David shows us here in Psalm 103. And then third, the truth for happy in yourself in God, that there's a truth that you have to hold on to. I mean, this is a high point in all of the Bible uh, to tell us what God is like. This is a place where people of faith go back to over and over and over again to remind themselves of what God is like. But let's look at the text along those three points, the need and the method and the truth to be happy in yourself in God. So first, the need. The need to be happy in yourself in God. And the reason is, is you are happy in yourself with something. This is the way the human heart works. You need some source of joy and contentment and comfort. And it's meant to be God. You were made in such a way that it's meant to be God but if not God, then it's going to be something else, maybe family or some other relationship or success or wealth. But the problem is, how, however, is anything besides God can be threatened. It can be taken away from you. It can, it can be, you know, you can lose it. And so if you make family your life, family's good, but it's not meant to be your life. If you make family your life, then what if somebody gets sick and dies? What, what's going to happen to you? Parents, if you make your kids your life when they grow up and move away and start their own life. If you make a relationship your life, your source of happiness and joy, well, what happens when that person disappoints you, which they are obviously going to do because they're not perfect? If you make money your comfort and joy in your life, what happens when the stock market tanks. Do you see? This is a big problem that we have to face. St. Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now, think about what he just said and, and listen to Psalm 63 again. Look at what he says here in verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as, a, as, a, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, that's, that's David hiding out in the wilderness. And I've been to that desert. I hope we're going to go back there someday soon. But that desert in southern Israel, it looks like the surface of the moon. It's just rock and sand and clay. There is no water. There are no trees. Nothing grows. It is a desolate wasteland. And David looked around and he said, wow, this place is what life without God is like. I mean, a beautiful, loving family with great Instagram pics, without God is a desert with no water. 
10 million in the bank without God is a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have friends who have more money than they will ever spend in a lifetime. It hasn't made them feel any safer. I know people who have made it to the top of their profession and it hasn't made them any happier or any more fulfilled. Now see, if you try to happy yourself with anything other than God, you will never be satisfied. You will always feel, this is what, this, you will always feel a certain level of discontent. You will always need more. If you try to make family your life, then family's not meant to be your life, which means there will never be enough time. You will always need more time and more time, more money in the bank account, more time, you know, time with the people that you love, but no more will ever be enough because it's a God-sized hole you're trying to fill. With things that are far too small, we were made with a cosmic thirst that can only be satisfied in God. We, in our smallness, were made for things that are so big, a love so big, a purpose for life so big that without God, we are doomed to constantly feel tired and overwhelmed. But also, we were made for, by God, for a happiness so great a joy so constant, so consuming that anything less will leave us ever restless, never resting, always after gain through more and never enjoying the gift of what has already been given. And that's the reason. See, what the, what the scripture's teaching us here, what David is trying to teach us here is that that is the reason so many of us are perpetually discouraged it's why so many in our world are confused and in their confusion are trying to redefine our basic understanding of the world and even human biology. It's why so many of us are so driven. It's why we're compulsive, why we're controlling and miserable. Sin is the search for happiness apart from God, a happiness of our own making through effort, at least it sounds strange to say this, but like in my generation, it was through effort. But now, now in the younger generations, through personal freedom and self-expression. And it's a tragedy because there is no such thing. So learn the lesson from those who have been fortunate enough to get everything they thought they needed. They got the promotion. They got the fairy tale wedding. They got a new body. And it left them just as discontent and sad and worried as they were before. That's where David found himself, thirsty, fainting, no water to drink, he said. But then something happened, beginning in verse 3. He turned a corner, and let's read it. And he goes on to say, so, um, verse 2, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. What's happening to David here is he is giving up on ever finding a happiness of his own, and instead he's starting in faith to look to God as the source of his comfort and strength. And when he did that, to his surprise, he found what he was looking for. He found at the thing that was at the bottom that was always missing in all the other joys that he was experiencing, the steadfast love of the Lord. Look what he says, verse 3. Here's the conclusion he comes to as he turns to God. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life. You see what he's saying? He says, see the love of God for you is the love that you're looking for in all the other relationships that are disappointing to you. The glory of God is the beauty that you're seeking in all the other places in your life. The power of God is the strength and the comfort and the security that all of the connections and the resources that you have could never give. David says, your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. And then he says, so because of that, because, because now my, my soul sings at the way that you have loved me in Jesus, 
So I will bless you as long as I live, verse 4. I will happy my heart, is what that phrase means, in you, because if I have everything but not you, I have nothing. But if I have you and nothing else, then I have everything. Because your steadfast love is the thing that I've been looking for my whole life. Indeed, it is better than anything else this life can give to me. And so that's the need. The need for so many people, for some of us, is to recognize the ways that we are looking for joy among things that cannot bring joy. We are looking for food and drink among things that cannot satisfy. But second then, so if what we need is to turn our hearts to God, like David has shown us here, let's say, how do you happy your heart in God? What is the method for learning how to turn to the Lord in faith instead of looking to things, um, created things that never satisfy. Well, James Montgomery Boyce, he said this. He was a famous pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many, many years. He said in his commentary on the Psalms, he says, some, some Psalms are addressed to God. Some are spoken to other people. But in Psalm 103, the psalmist is speaking to himself. He's speaking to himself. And that's what we've been talking about throughout this whole series is how the Psalms model for us what it looks like to be self-communing, to be talking to ourselves. So the pathway to happiness is repentance and faith. Let me say that again. The pathway to happiness is actually repentance and faith, to be turning away from things that cannot satisfy and turning our hearts to God who does. Isaiah 44, 2 offers this image of our grasping onto things. It's really, I thought a lot about this this week, idols, the things that we've replaced God with, we've replaced God with good but lesser things. And then what we do is because we're so invested in them, we hold on for dear life. And the imagery is a, of the hand there is, it, it's, a, it's a taking of something and making it the source of your strength and your, um, your sufficiency and, and you know, your sense of safety. It's, so getting things done. It says, it says uh, so we put all these things and we grab onto them with our hands and we refuse to let them go. It's a way of getting things done. It's a way of uh, providing for ourselves in our lives. But it says there in Isaiah 44 that it's like feeding on ashes. It's a delusion. We're holding on to these things and we're crushing them in our hands because they're not meant to bear the weight that we're trying to make them bear. And the way back to reality, to the joy that we're looking for, is actually to look at that thing and to see it for what it really is. And you have to say, this is, this is the words from Isaiah, you have to say, this thing in my right hand is a lie. This thing that I've been grasping onto, that I'm crushing under the weight of expectations in my life, and it's, it's letting me down every single time, and there's never enough, and I'm always wanting more. The problem is, is this thing that I've reached out and grabbed a hold of with my right hand is a lie. This thing that I'm trusting in, it cannot save me. And then Isaiah says, you have to let it go. And that's repentance. Turning away from what cannot save and things that cannot satisfy, faith is turning to God instead for comfort, for peace, and all of these things. And it's not a one-time thing. It's all of life over and over again. And you do it by learning what David shows us here, the all art of self-communing, to diagnose your sin and idolatry and then remind yourself of the truth. And we've said over and over again, the main art of the spiritual life is learning how to handle yourself, not letting your emotions get the best of you, but taking yourself in hand and reminding yourself of the truth until it begins to change how you feel and how you perceive the world around you. And that's what Psalm 103 models, how to happy yourself in God by talking to your heart about God. So look there, verse one. David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, 
who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, from experience, in my own life, and you can nod along so I don't feel alone when I start to expose my heart to you, okay? Because this is a vulnerable place up here sometimes, but... One word of criticism is the equivalent of a hundred words of encouragement. Anybody else experience that? One critique tends to carry the same weight as a hundred compliments. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't say, correct one another daily. (laughs) It says, encourage one another daily, which suggests that we have an encouragement deficit and not the other. The freight of negative words in the soul is so great that we tend to be constantly in an encouragement deficit. Now, here's the thing. It's the same with the good and the bad in our lives. We experience a million mercies every day. But it's the one hard thing that can make you forget them all. A million mercies, and then one hard thing. And because of the one hard thing, we find it hard to trust God. We start to question whether he's good and doing things well in our lives. And we have to know this about ourselves. We have to know that we assign more significance to the bad things than we do to the good things. It's a feature of our rebellion and our sin against our maker, a way of making the case to our own hearts that our lives would be better off in our hands and not his. One bad thing can make you forget a thousand blessings. You can hold that kind of suspicion in your heart towards God. So if it takes a million mercies to make up for one bad thing, then do you understand we better not miss a single one? We need to name them all. Count them out. Sometimes literally make a list. Ashley and I did this a long time ago at the old house, maybe 10 years ago now. We, it was a particularly discouraging time that we were in, and we just sat down one night, and we wrote out a list. We, we named every single good thing that we could think of that was happening in our lives, and we made a list of it, and we put it on the refrigerator so it was right there, and we walked by it every single day and had to, had to see it. And the truth is, see, we don't pay attention to what David calls God's benefits here, verse 2. We take them for granted. And that, too, is a function of sin. Listen, what time is it? It's 10.54 on a Sunday morning. You, you at 10.54 on uh, July 15th, the year 2023, you, at this moment, while we're sitting here together, you have already experienced a thousand different benefits this day. By the time you got here this morning and are sitting here, you woke up with a house that you live in, Probably in a bed. If not, let us know. We can help you with that, you know. But most of us, I would think, hopefully a comfortable bed in a house with electricity. So it was cool enough to still sleep under the covers. I know you bump it down to 70 degrees at night. You're Floridians. That's what you do. I know this. But think about that. And you woke up and you turned on the lights and they came on. And you follow the smell of the coffee already brewing in your coffee pot that you set the timer for the night before into the kitchen. And there was a machine that had done all of that for you. And it was there hot and waiting for you. And you opened the refrigerator, which keeps things cold, and grabbed whatever 
things you use to make your coffee the way you like it, and you went into the pantry, and you stood there, and you tried to decide what to eat for breakfast from all of the dozens of options in your life. Do you understand? Everything's a miracle. Every single one of those things is a miracle, but you've only been awake for 10 minutes. And it continues like that for the rest of the day and every day after that. We just don't have the time to go through them all because we got to get out of here because you get mad at me if we are too late getting done with church. It becomes the one thing, <laughs> right, that messes everything else up. But I just want you to see, there's something to be said about allowing yourself to become overwhelmed, consciously overwhelmed by the hundreds and thousands and millions of small things that add up to the life that God has given you to live. And isn't that exactly the point that David's making here? He says, don't forget. You see that? Don't allow yourself to become focused on the few things that aren't going the way that you would like them to because those aren't the biggest things happening in your life. Now, it feels that way. It probably feels that way, but that's your sin making you feel that way. Here's what David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And that means calling to mind as much of the good as you can to happy yourself in God and then allowing the accumulation of all of the good things that come to mind to re-narrate your circumstances. See, every life is a story. And God is a character in your story. In truth, he is the character in your story. His role in your life is not a cameo. He's the one shaping the storylines that make up the life that you've been given. And we forget this too. And we need to be reminded of this. We need, we need to remind ourselves not just of the details, as I did just a minute ago, but also by remembering the kinds of stories that God tells. They are gospel stories. There are certain storylines that, that are themes that make up every one of our lives, and we see them here. As soon as David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, he begins to tell the story of his life. He says, God, what is God doing? Here's what God's doing. Whatever God's doing, whatever the particular circumstances of your life may be, here are the storylines that are really the, the, the sum of all of those details. God is forgiving, he is healing, he's redeeming, he's crowning, he's satisfying. That's what he says there in verses 3 through, four, three through 5. Now it might be worth reflecting on each of those on your own. I would encourage you to do that. Take a piece of paper, write out each of those words. God is forgiving, he's healing. He's redeeming, he's crowning, he's satisfying. How is he doing that in each of those things in your life? That would be a really good exercise. But for the sake of time, let me try to summarize and say this, that there is a history of sin and brokenness, not just in your life, but that you inherited from the generations prior to you. And not just that, Cornelius Plantinga, he writes this, I've always been captured by his way of describing the world we live in. He says, each new generation enters a world that has long ago lost its Eden, a world that is now half ruined by the billions of bad choices and millions of old habits congealed into thousands of cultures all across the ages that result in this, this um, world that is off its axis that we live in. We live in a world that has been ruined by sin. But God, see, who in Jesus Christ has entered into the ruin of the world to bear the curse of sin in his own body on the cross so that all who believe in him might be forgiven and reconciled to God. God forgives. But not only that, who in his resurrection from the dead is now healing the world and making all things new. And one day soon there will be no more tears, no more disease, no more cancer, no more death. God heals. He is healing. God is turning 
this desert world into a paradise. He is rescuing, rescuing you from every danger, from every regret. The worst things are becoming the best things because God is redeeming. The, the worst things, find me in heaven and tell me you remember me telling you this. The worst things are the things that a thousand years from now will be the best things because he's redeeming. But until then, because that, who knows how long that's going to take, until then, he is adorning your life with beauty and love and purpose and giving you meaningful, a meaningful, joyful role to play in the work that he is doing in the world. And if you look at your life, the only, the only um, true assessment you can make is surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. Always, only goodness and mercy because God is crowning. He's filling your life with good things to enjoy, and then he's giving you the grace to enjoy your life because he is satisfying. See that? So don't let cynicism rob you of the proper perspective. Don't let grief disappoint and cause you to forget. Your unbelieving heart will narrate your life to you by pushing all kinds of propaganda. And when it does, you have to re-narrate your life to your heart with the truth. Let me show. So when shame says, oh boy, you, you really messed up. You're such a failure. No one, no one will ever love you. Then you have to say, yes, but God forgives. When your discouragement starts talking, this is so messed up, I, it can't be fixed. What do you do? You have to talk back. You say, yes. But God is healing. God is redeeming. When your cynicism finds a voice and you think, well, been there, done that. It is what it is. It's never going to be any different. We might as well just give up. Then you have to make your counter argument. No, no, no. God is redeeming. And that's how you happy your heart in God. With the method that David shows us here, by calling to your own soul to bless the Lord. Now, lastly, though, because let's finish, let's come to the close here. The tr there's a truth. What you do is you're reminding yourself of the truth. And the truth about what God is doing in these storylines that he is telling, forgiving and healing and redeeming and crowning and satisfying, all of that is rooted not only in what God is doing, but in who God is. And so you happy yourself in God. And I've left far too little time for this. Beginning in verse 6, though, David begins to reflect not on just what God is doing in his life, but on what leads to what God's doing in his life, and that is on God's character, on God's person. And so let's review some of the highlights. And this is just going to be, I know I talk fast. This is going to be rapid fire because there's just too much here, okay? But let's look here. Begin, start in verse 8 with me. He says, the Lord, what's God like? Well, he says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now you find those words repeated again and again throughout the Bible. They are the closest thing we have to kind of an, an ancient liturgical expression of God's goodness and love for his people. And the point, you find people try to say, you know, the point is not that mercy means this and then grace means this and they're different. And they're this, that's not the point. They, the point is that they're different facets of the same diamond. They're all making the same point, that God is not aloof. God is not dispassionate. He feels deeply for us. God is not exacting. He makes up for our lack with his own wisdom and strength. God is not impatient. He doesn't fly off the handle. He is slow and gentle. God is not fickle. He doesn't act according to his feelings. He acts according to his commitments. And David goes on 
coming out of verse 8 into just reflecting more on each of those things, he says, verse 9, just look there, he says, God gets angry. But his anger is an expression of his love. He gets angry because he loves. He corrects. He disciplines us when we need it. But he doesn't keep his anger, it says there. It doesn't last. It's a beautiful truth. Psalm 35 says, his anger is but for a moment His favor is for a lifetime. God gets angry, but he's not angry. He gets angry, but he's not an angry person. He's a loving person. His anger is always necessary. It's always measured. It's always good. It says, it says in verse 10, the next verse, that God is forgiving, that he, look at this, this is so, this is so amazing. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. He has dealt with Jesus according to our sins. That's what our gospel tells us, that actually Jesus is the one who got paid according to our sins. He deals with him according to our sins so that he can now deal with us according to his righteousness. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed his transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? You can't answer that question. There is no answer. And that's exactly the point. Charles Spurgeon said, if sin be so far removed, then we may be sure that the scent, the trace, the very memory of it must be entirely gone. Jesus has borne our sins away. And if your life is not going good, it's not because you deserve it. If your life is going good, it's not because you deserve it. It's going bad, it's not because you deserve it. If it's going good, it's not because you deserve it. You need to get rid of that whole way of thinking. The gospel is grace. Life is grace. Everything is gift. And God is fundamentally forgiving, but he's also compassionate. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, the way a good father is with his children. Think about the best dads you know. It it means that God can't help but smile when he thinks of you. No father, when his child takes their first steps and they tumble and trip and fall, says, well, dang, that wasn't very impressive. (laughs) What do you do? Yay! Your kids do it horribly. But to you, they do it beautifully. Because... You don't have high expectations of them. You know they don't know how to walk. They're learning how to walk. And so the first step, as clumsy as it might be, elicits probably too much cheering and celebrating, to be honest. We're raising little narcissists, I guess, maybe. Who knows, you know? But that's the point. The point is that it says here that he, that that, that that, a father cheering his child in their first steps on is a faint reflection of the kind of compassion and kindness that God shows towards us. He doesn't ask too much of us. He's not put off by our weakness. In fact, in Hebrews 4, it says that he sympathizes with us in our weakness, that Jesus Christ has made it possible for the Godhead to be sympathetic towards us in our very worst places. That word sympathy in Latin means same suffering. And that verse in Hebrews says that God, who has come in Jesus to put on flesh and blood that he endured the same frailty and temptation that we experience. And the result of that is that you have a God in heaven who is compassionate because he knows your frame. He's walked in your shoes. He knows what it's like from from your perspective and your experience. He's entered into your experience. He knows that we're dust. He remembers our frame. 
And he's fundamentally compassionate towards us. And lastly, he's stubborn in his love. Verse 11, this is probably my favorite, his steadfast love. We're actually going to do, come back next week, we're going to talk about that just on its own next week. But that word stubborn, steadfast love, which pops up over and over again in this psalm, it means that God's reasons for loving us come from within himself and not from anything in us. And here's why that's good news. It means that there is nothing that we can do to gain God's love. And if that's true, then there's nothing that we can do to lose it either. Our love is fickle. We are so on again, off again with our affection. The prophet Hosea said our love's like a mist, here for the briefest moment and then gone. We are like grass. It goes on to describe here as he goes down further in the psalm, verse 15 and below. We're like grass in July in Florida with no rain. What's the deal with no rain, guys? It needs to rain, but not God. His ways are not our ways. We are like the grass, so fickle, here one minute and gone the next, but his steadfast love endures forever. It overcomes every obstacle. It pushes through every resistance. It outlasts every drought. God's love is undefeated. Verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting, his steadfast love endures from everlasting to everlasting, which means this, if you are God's and if God is yours, If you have made covenant with him, then there was never a time all the way back to the beginning and beyond when God did not love you, which means there will never be a time all the way to the end and beyond when God will not love you. Now, I thought you'd amen that, I got to be honest, because that was profound for me this week. To think of the scope of my life and beyond in both directions, that there was never, there was never a time and there never will be a time when his love will not be undefeated. But here's the best part, not just for you, it says, but for your generations. If you fear him, and if you trust him, and if you obey his commands. Henry Light, who's a famous hymn writer, he he poetically captures his truth. He says, beyond yon flower, it springs, it blooms, and wide the morning air perfumes. A sudden cloud comes o'er the skies, the blasts descend, the flower, it dies. Such, such is man, so bright his bloom So soon he hastens to the tomb, the creature of a summer day that springs and blows and fades away. Listen to this. Not so is God. Unmoved is he while worlds dissolve and ages flee. And as unmoved, his promise stands to all that keep his high commands that build their hopes on grace alone and make almighty strength their own. They, when all else shall fail or flee, they, Lord, shall rise and reign with thee. There's one more little piece. Here in verse 18, it says that God is compassionate and he's stubborn and he's forgiving and he, all of these things. But verse 18 reminds us that he is also king, that he has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all, which means that he has the power and the authority to back up every claim that David makes here. It's a sure thing. And again, all of these statements are variations of a single truth about God, the, the great God of heaven, the maker of all things. This great God is also good. And I know it's like drinking from a fire hydrant, but sometimes that's what, you, what it takes. You, to happy yourself in God, to overwhelm all of the negative emotions and all of the false perceptions that we can live with, with the doctrine of God. And you know it's popular now to have daily affirmations. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this? Daily affirmations that you recite um, and memorize like a daily liturgy to psych yourself up. But, but what's interesting about all those daily affirmations is they're all about the self. They're about believing in yourself and reminding yourself of how great you are. We need daily affirmations, but we need daily affirmations about God. Yeah. 
to use as ammunition against our fear and unbelief. And that's why Psalm 103 is so beloved. It's some of the most beautiful language in all of the Bible about God. So what's the takeaway as we finish this morning? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in the book I've mentioned before, Spiritual Depression, he makes this statement. Um, He says, you cannot make yourself happy, but you can make yourself rejoice. Happiness, he said, is not circumstantial. It is this blessedness, this blessedness that leads to worship of the Lord. This happiness is not circumstantial. It is an internal state of the soul that has nothing to do with what's going on around you. You can't really control your feelings. And you can't control your life. And you can't control the way you feel about any of it. But you can't make yourself feel happy. But you can make yourself bless the Lord by reminding yourself of what you believe. And what Mueller said again was that he said he learned and the power of his life came from learning that that should be the primary business of our every day. Above anything else, the first thing you do in the morning and you don't get out, if it takes two hours, then you get up two hours early so that you can do the work before you head out into the day. Happying yourself in God until it sticks and you go out into the world with strength and peace and comfort and joy. Exactly what Henry Light goes on in that hymn that I quoted earlier to say. He says, praise, this is, he models this. He says, this is what you do. This is how you talk to your heart. You say something like this. Praise him, ye angels, and sustain with your high notes my sinking strain. Ye starry hosts that round him shine, sun, moon, break forth in strains divine. With all thine offspring, earth arise and join the chorus of the skies. Nor thou, my soul, be last to sing the praises of thy God and King. Remember when Jesus said he was walking along and the rocks began to cry out and they said, can you, well, his people, the people were worshiping him and, and uh, they said, can you make them be quiet? They're really bothering us. And he said, you don't understand. If they stop singing, the rocks are going to cry out. The Bible talks about the trees clapping for joy and the hills celebrating the coming of the King. If creation instinctively knows that it should be worshiping the one who's made us and the one who's redeemed us in Jesus Christ, then what that hymn says is don't let your soul be the last to sing. Make sure your soul is singing along with the rest of creation the praises of your God and King because that is the way to a happy life. Happying yourself in God. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? So Father, we need great strength and encouragement. We need um, experience. We're so lacking in experience in this. Uh, we, we are so easily discouraged. We are so easily led by our own sin, by the accusations of our own heart to discount your goodness to us and to allow ourselves to live in a flood of negative emotions of distrust and suspicion and fearfulness, missing all of the wonderful things that you're doing in our lives And so would you in this moment come by the power of your spirit to open us to the reality of the hundreds and thousands and millions of benefits and blessings that we are heirs to so that we might latch on to just a few of them enough that it would cause our souls to erupt in singing and celebrating and adoring you as our our hearts talk trash to us. Would you give us the skill and the courage and the strength to talk back, to take ourselves in hand, 
uh, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves of the truth, of the love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ, the one who came and gave his life for us, uh, paying the ransom price that we might be reconciled to the Father. What great joy is ours if we could just access it, but we need your spirit to help. And so even as we sing in these last moments of our, of, of our service, some of us are going to sing because we feel all we should. Some of us need to sing because we don't feel as we should. And so as we sing, would you begin to, the healing process in our hearts that we might truly awaken with the kind of joy that you are worthy of. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He is worthy of our worship. And so receive this word of benediction. Here's the promise that everything that you just read in Psalm 103 um, this is the, this word of benediction is the promise ahead of time that whatever you face this week, it comes from the heart and from the hands of the God described in Psalm 103. That in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in him, God's face is turned towards you and all of the blessing uh, of the, the Trinity and the internal life of the Trinity is being poured out upon your life. And so receive these words and go trusting uh, in his uh, presence and provision to go with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You go in his peace.